Well, we are in the final section of uh, of the book of Ephesians, which is pretty pretty fun. Uh, this is actually the this is the final uh, the, the, this is the final um, this is the final pericope. This is the final the final little tiny section, um, and it's one that if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably either read or heard a sermon about or um, at least know of. Um, in your, in your mind, you've probably ha- heard someone make reference to it. It's Ephesians, the, the end of Ephesians chapter 6 in the armor of God. So this will be, be one that, that maybe we can find some new application that we haven't found before. Um, but for, for many of you, it's just going to be a reminder. Um, and sometimes we just need that. We need reminders to, uh, to, to <clears throat> help re-solidify the faith that we have. Now, before we get to the actual passage, though, let's overview the whole arc of Ephesians. Paul has been writing this book to a, a series of churches in the ancient Near East um, that are centered around this main population center, Ephesus. And he's um, writing this letter to encourage them and to teach them what it means to live a life worthy of the calling they have received and to um, live out their faith in day-to-day life. We know that it's very likely, just by the way he writes this letter, that he he probably doesn't know many of the people, excuse me, doesn't know many of the people in this church. And we see it actually in the in the final greeting. He, he gives a bit of a longer greeting, which we'll read in a second, compared to what he normally does, um, likely because he's trying to be a little bit more formal with, uh, with, these, uh, with these new friends and family members in Christ. The letter starts out by saying what what it's about, and it's it's all about the mystery of the gospel, and that in Christ all things are being brought to unity under Christ's lordship. Everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth is how Paul puts it, are being brought together in in unity under Christ's lordship, under the rule and reign of Jesus. That's a pretty big message, and then he tries to draw out exactly what that means using a, d- a number of different themes, uh, themes of peace and love and faith and grace. So we see these in really summarized really well in Ephesians chapter two. In Ephesians chapter two, it says, uh, it says this. Um, so in, in verse four of Ephesians chapter two, it says, well, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transit, in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And right there we see a weaving of peace and actually mercy and, uh, excuse me, of love and grace and mercy, all sort of tying in together. And he goes on to say in in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good good works, which God has prepared for us to do in advance. And that really is the key of this book. God has prepared a way for us to live in the world, and we are to live in that way, not by our own power, but by the power of God at work in us, because of his great grace and his great love for us. And even more than that, 
This great grace causes peace amongst all the types of divisions that we find throughout our world. Um, God takes a broken humanity and begins to weave it into a new, a one new humanity that, um, that can show his peace, that can live God's peace, and that can share his peace with others. And we see this in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, that's Jew, the Jews and the Gentiles, two um, ethnicities that really did not like each other in the ancient world. And God, in Christ, took their division and melted it away by his love. He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. All of the hostility that we find in the world amongst people is put to death on the cross. And it's why peace is something we can live and peace is something that we can, um, that we can, that we can really take hold of and share with others. It's because it's not our peace. It's the peace of Christ given to us because of his sacrifice for us. And so then how do we live that out? How do we live out what it means to be peaceful and loving and faithful and gracious and merciful people in the world. Ephesians starts to talk about that from verse 3 all the way to the place that where we are in chapter 6. We live it out by how we speak to each other, because how we speak to each other, and the words that we use of each other, reveal something of our hearts. If our hearts are rotting, it will show in our speech. And um, especially in our speech, when we think very, very few people are listening. Um, I, I think that, uh, I think that gossip actually is a great indicator of the condition of our hearts, because in those times when we think that no one else is listening, or there's only that one or two people or three people who we can, who we can, um, we feel talk openly and talk crassly about others with, that's when we show the true nature of our hearts at any given moment. So think about those times and how do you talk about people? How do you talk about people you don't get along with? How do you talk about people who maybe rub you the wrong way? And this might be something that the, the Holy Spirit's inviting you into to, to, to look at how you speak at others and to repent of speaking badly of them. You can, I think, dislike someone but still love them. You can say, you really, you're like sandpaper on my skin, but I'm still going to choose to love you and and as, as a starting point for that, how you talk about someone um, will actually influence how you treat them later on. If you talk about them graciously, you're going to treat them graciously because you're going to train your mind to think about them graciously. So Paul actually talks a lot about speaking. How do we speak about one another? But he also says, you know, your, your love for each other and your experience of God's peace and faith and grace are also going to be tied up in how you serve one another, especially in your homes. And how you live in the world that is in right relationship with God, according to the identity that he gives you. God gives you an identity as his child, as a saint rather than a sinner, as someone who is set apart to do his good works. 
You were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, is how Ephesians describes it. You were made to be like God, not as God. We are not gods, but we are... Um, we were created to sort of image God to the world, to show the world what who God is and what God is like. And so we, God actually empowers us to live righteously and in holiness. That is um, expressed, I think, a little bit differently depending on if it's personal or if it's corporate. Personally, I think it means we live... We live holy lives. We live lives dedicated to following Jesus in everything and live according to his teaching and according to the, 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 the teachings and the story of Scripture. We actually take the story of Scripture and we, we make it our own. We, we um, assent to it as the true expression of reality, as it truly is, and then orient our lives around that. <clears throat> and that means... Uh, in in the words of Paul, not living as the Gentiles do, or not living as the as the people whose minds are 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 deceived do. Don't engage in sexual immorality. Don't speak ill of each other. Constantly, instead, try to serve one another and commit yourself to holiness, to holy living in every facet of your being. But then, corporately. That holiness has to express itself as just living, as living justly, because God's righteousness is and holiness aren't just about us right living personally. It's us working together with others to um, to express God's character to the world. And part of God's character is that God is just, and so we live justly, and we live in and we walk humbly, and we live. Um, with mercy at the forefront of our minds. That's all. That's real. That's that's all in the first couple of chapters of this book. The the well, the first six. <laughs> um, and in the section previous to this, <clears throat> Paul says, "Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the world is. Be very careful how you live, not unwise." but as wise. Do not be foolish, but be wise in how you live. And he says, how do you be wise? You are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit empowers you to live in the, in the wisdom of God um, in, in every facet of your being. And so that section actually leads here. We've seen what that meant in terms of households. What does it mean to be very careful how we live? Well, in the ancient world, if households fell apart, the, the Roman Empire fell apart. And so keeping the structure of households was actually really important in the early years of the church. And we see that. But Paul lays the foundation for, for using the, our families as places where God's kingdom can explode out of. He plants seeds um, to, to grow trees that will take over the land. And then we end up in this verse where it says, finally, and this is where Paul ends off. He, he, he wants us to, to, he wants to describe one more place where we can be careful in how we live. And so let's read the passage and then we'll, we'll actually, we'll, we'll first off, um, take a look at the ending verse because we can see this final greeting that Paul gives in uh, verse 21. 
that he is sending this letter with someone, and I won't, I won't even try to pronounce the name, I'm sorry. Um, he, he gives this letter to a person to, to give to the Ephesians. Um, he's sending him with a very, with this purpose of, of, of not just giving the letter, but actually giving an update on Paul's life so that the Ephesians can know how to pray for Paul, which we'll see in a, in a, in a couple of minutes. And then gives this longer greeting, peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That's a very formal way of ending his letter. Usually it's just a quick grace and peace, but in this letter, it's a, you can see he's, he's thinking a lot more about how do I build a relationship with this church? And this is how he does it. He, he adds these little touches, these more personal touches into the letter to help them um, get to know him a little bit more and through getting to know him, get to know God a little bit more. But what is this passage all about? You could, you've probably seen the heading already if you have your Bible open. It's all about the armor of God. And so let's take a look at this. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Finally, be strong in the Lord. This is still connected to this be filled with the spirit. So I think that be, being filled with the spirit, we've already said is going to be, we're, we're going to, if we're filled with the spirit, we are not going to get drunk on wine and be led into debauchery. Instead, we're going to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. We'll sing and make music from our hearts to God. We'll always give thanks to the Lord and we'll submit to one another in reverence of Christ. And so Paul says, given all of that, when you are filled with the Spirit and that's what your life looks like, you're going to have to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Not in your mighty power, it's not all about you doing as much as you can to order your life in, a, in the exact way that you think it should be. It's God at work in you, ordering your life according to his will and design. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then how do we do that? It says right away, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That is how we are strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We put on his armor. And interestingly, Paul doesn't start talking about what this armor actually is right away. Instead, he, he goes a little bit off track to describe what he means by what the, what the devil's schemes are and what he means by that. In verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, <clears throat> against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And this is a helpful reminder for us that our opposition is not against other people. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against something happening in the spiritual realm that is actually affecting the physical realm, which it which would just change how we think about um, our interactions with people generally. Um, but especially when we when we push up against opposition to the gospel, and when we push up against against um, well against God, it's it's not it's not actually the people that we should be finding fault in. It is the spiritual forces at work who are trying to lead the people astray. 
Um, this might be the one verse in in <clears throat> this letter that we don't really that we ha probably have the most trouble understanding because of two reasons. We've been influenced by two forces in our thinking really powerfully. The first is rationalism. <clears throat> that is that we think that our opinions should be based on reason and knowledge rather than on faith or emotions. This is something that has existed within our culture for centuries. And so it's deep ingrained and we might not describe it that way, but many of us within our culture and even within the church look at, uh, <clears throat> look at the world and say, okay, if I can only form an, an, an opinion about something, if it's based on, um, if it's based on my knowledge of the situation or if it's based on what I think is reasonable about the situation. And so we can actually see this and whenever we think that something has to make sense to me in order for it to be valid, that's rationalism at work. Of course, that's not true. Um, something can be quite valid and quite true and not make sense to us. And <clears throat> the mystery of the gospel is a great example for, for, for some of us. We don't quite grasp it, but we, ha but we, but we trust it, we believe it. Rationalism is a powerful force that actually, when, then when we look at this passage, we see all the devil's schemes and it's not against flesh and blood. Well, how do we test things that aren't flesh and blood? How do we understand <clears throat> the intricacies of that that we cannot know that's hidden behind a veil, um, so to speak? And so we, we sort of dismiss it on the one hand because of, the, because of rationality, but on the other hand, our, our culture is quite powerfully motivated by scientific materialism, or just materialism in general, but scientific materialism is a pretty powerful force. Um, and what do we mean by that? It means that our senses, our five senses, are all that matters in understanding what is true. So if it can't be tested physically using the scientific method, it's not true. That's, um, that's a way of expressing scientific materialism. Um, now, partner those two together, and what you get is a, a suspicion of anything that claims to be spiritual. And we, you can see this in our culture. If you've ever had a conversation with someone about God, you've probably picked up on this, but not known how it, what exactly was happening in the conversation. Well, this is part of what was happening. Rationalism partnered with materialism. Um, that leads to us then, if we're trained in this since our childhood, which we are, generally speaking, when we read a passage like this, we'll say our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We'll think, well, what it means is that the devil works in structures and systems, and that it's actually the cultural constructs that this is describing, not, not spiritual realms necessarily. And a, a number of theologians have tried to describe it that way in the late 20th century. But it ignores um, the entire witness of scripture, which is why I think it's, um, why I think it's a bit silly, although it has, it has some truth to it. Um, I think Paul doesn't see the devil's work as just being about the systems and structures of the world. Paul sees the devil's schemes being much bigger than that. He gives the devil a lot more credit for how he, uh, how how this personification of evil in the world, tries to lead us astray. And all systems, all technologies, in fact, are just extensions of ourselves, and those extensions include the worst parts of us. And so, when people talk about 
systemic racism in our culture, that should not surprise us that there is systemic racism because there's racism. And when we build technologies to extend something of ourselves, whether that's to extend our hands in helping people or extend our minds and thinking or extend um, extend our presence through the internet, which is part of what this is doing. We're losing something, but that's what this uh, video um, live streaming is doing, in fact. Um, that extends good parts of us and it extends bad parts of us. And systems will look just like humans do. So if humans are racist, which we, which we can be and are, um, then guess what? Our systems are going to be as well. This is not... This is not this. This shouldn't be shocking, but the way to get around it is to change us so that we can change the systems, and we'll continue to create systems that have flaws. But hopefully, the flaws become less as we're more transformed by by God's grace. Now, this is this is then how Satan plays the picture. Satan is the one who's trying to manipulate us in our hearts to live further into sin, to create sinful systems, and also manipulating the systems to draw us into sin. The plans of Satan are, are, are quite, um, quite profound and far-reaching, but God is more powerful than Satan. And we'll just even see this in this passage. How do we fight these schemes? This is what Paul says. Therefore, verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes you may be ready to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand he says you're going to stand firm you're going to stand your ground defensively so that you will be able to stand offensively later Satan's at work trying to manipulate our hearts and manipulate the systems around us and use his, his minions demons and, and fallen angels and the like to try to influence our hearts away from God. But Paul says, if we put on this armor that God gives us, we'll be able to stand firm against those attacks and then actually be able to attack back in a number of ways. <clears throat> so he says, stand firm then with this armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, um, feet fitted with shoes that are the readiness of the gospel that to bring peace a shield of faith the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit is what this passage says all this different clothing that you would use if you were a roman soldier to protect yourself in battle paul's saying we are at war against the devil and his schemes we are at war and so we need armor you don't go out into a war without any armor no you need uh the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And in Ephesians, the truth has always been consistently the gospel expressed in our words and, and, and Jesus expressing the gospel with his life. That is truth. And that's the truth that we wrap ourselves with that holds all of the armor together. And interestingly, he's saying, you've got to put that on first. Put that on first and it'll hold everything else together. Then he says, put on the breastplate, breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, which I think he is describing right living with God, being in right relationship with God and living lives of holiness and justice and mercy. Put on the breastplate 
of righteousness. And then fit your feet with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. This is trying, this is, I think is actually describing putting on shoes because you wouldn't want to go into battle with, without shoes. Can you imagine that going out into, into rocky soil and thorns and not having anything on your feet? <clears throat> Excuse me. The, um, this, this readiness that comes with the gospel of peace is, is, is as we have already read in Ephesians, all about bringing this message of reconciliation to people. Again, he himself is our peace. This is bringing the message of Jesus. This is bringing people the belt of truth to put around their waist. He himself is our peace, who has made two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. <clears throat> and in one body reconcile both to God through the cross by which he can put to death their hostility and our hostility as well. He came and preached peace to those who were far and peace to those who were near. And this is what the cross is all about. God preaching peace to us that we can experience peace in reconciliation with God. So we put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. The uh, we have feet fitted with readiness. We've we've put on our shoes to go out and spread God's peace. And then we we're, we're told to take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever read this and and noticed this, but it doesn't say to stop the arrows. It says to extinguish the arrows, the flaming arrows, which is interesting because these are wooden shields. Um, it, it, at some points, it, you have a flaming arrow that hits a wooden shield. Guess what's happening to the wooden shield? It's going to burn. But the ancient Romans didn't just have wooden shields. If they had a shield, it, it may be made of wood. That it might have been made of metal um, for some of for some of the higher up um, soldiers, but they would have had shields made of. Um, made of wood and then wrapped in leather and doused in water. And it's that image that Paul has in mind, most scholars think, that th th we have shields, but these flaming arrows are coming at us and we can, uh, we can, we can use that shield to not just stop the arrow, but having that, that leather with the water puts the fire out as it's, as it's, uh, as it's hitting the shield. Now, the only way that that works, though, is if there's a lot of shields protecting the front line so that there's, there's not able to get more arrows further back. There's the, it's this image of actually working together as a, as a unit in this war. Again, this is not a letter written to just one person. This is a letter written to a community of people. So when Paul's saying, put on the belt of truth, he means put on, you need to put on the belt of truth, but also the church needs to put on the belt of truth. The church needs to live in right relationship with God. The church needs to have feet fitted with readiness to go in and, and bring people the gospel of peace. And the church needs to have these, this trust in God, this shield of faith, that will stop flaming arrows and it's people individuals in the church working together is how you see that happen after the shield of faith we're told to take to take the helmet of salvation 
take God's gift of grace for you, which will protect your mind um, that's being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And the word of God um, is the, is the, is the, the message of, of God's gospel, which we now have in in God's word in print. And for, for, um, for Paul, this almost certainly would have been the Old Testament he includes, as well as the message of Jesus, which he saw as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so for us, it's our, it's our Bibles, because that's how we know what it is that the Old Testament is saying and how it is that Jesus fulfilled all of, all of it to bring all things into unity under his feet. <clears throat> so we take up the sword of the Spirit and the helmet of salvation. We put those on. And then after taking on all that armor, after putting on all of these different pieces to get ready for battle, what does Paul say that we should do? He says, pray. He doesn't say, okay, go out into the field and slaughter a bunch of people with the sword of the spirit. Go beat each other up. Go, go slash each other with the sword. No, he says, pray. This is how you wield the armor. You get into formation to stand firm and you get on your knees. And you pray to God with all kinds of prayers on all occasions. And he says, be alert. That is, um, know what prayers need to be prayed um, for the church. And not just, not just for individuals, for the church. Again, this is written to the church. So what, what kinds of prayers need to be prayed over the church to protect it? from the plans of the devil and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. So be aware of things happening spiritually around the church that is trying to impede it, but also pray for the people in the church that they would be able to stand strong in the Lord. And then Paul says, please pray for me for whenever I speak words may be given to me so that I will be fearless in making, excuse me, in making known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul says, don't just pray for each other. Like, here's a way that you can pray for me. And if you're ever thinking, how can I pray for for, for me, for, for your pastor? This is a good place to start. That I would be, um, that whenever I speak, the words may be given to me. And I would make fearlessly known the mystery of the gospel. That's a great prayer to pray over pastors. And so what is, how does this all come together? Here's, I think, the point. We are at war. But we are not at war with flesh and blood. We are at war with principalities and powers, with spiritual beings who want to, under the, under the direction of the devil, of, of, under the direction of Satan, the personification of evil in the world, wants to lead us astray, wants to stop us from being able to share the gospel with people, wants to manipulate our hearts away from God so that we can manipulate the systems and structures of the world away from God. We are at war. And so the thing that God tells us to do in this passage, above all other things, is to put on armor and to pray. And that's how we use the armor. Put on the armor and then use it in prayer. And that prayer 
is first defensively and then offensively. We stand firm and then we take a stand. We, we dig in our heels and then we march forward step by step. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, I think here's, a, here's a, maybe a, a question to reflect on this morning. Um, how often are you praying for our church? Not for each other's in the church, but actually the, the, the church, the mission of the church to, to spread this gospel of peace into this world. How often are you, well, how often are you praying for your family? Because Paul has said the gospel expresses itself first in families and that will influence how the church functions. Are you praying for your family? Are you praying that they would experience God's grace and love and, and, and that they would experience deepening faith and God's peace? Are you praying to make it really personal to our church? Are you praying over our building sale? Are you praying that we would find a new worship space? Are you digging in your heels to say, God, we ask you to intervene miraculously to see all these things through according to your design, not ours. According to your will, not ours. Are you praying for me in the way that Paul is saying that we should pray for leaders and pastors. Are you praying over the fall? Are you praying that we would experience this fall as we begin to move towards um, to, towards gathering together more in, dif- in, in different ways, but, but gathering together nonetheless? Are you praying for us and that we would be open to God's leading moment by moment in... In, in knowing how he's inviting us to do that because we've set up we've set out a plan but that plan can always change because we want to be listening to the spirit and the voice of God at work in us and through us and in his word especially to draw us to the place where he is already leading are you praying church this is your invitation for this week and this is my challenge to you to pray for us, to pray about the building sale, to pray about finding a worship space. This is something actually a a lot of church planters say, if you get into church planting, here's the thing that you're going to see the most spiritual attack over is is a space for worshiping. It's the thing that we need the most prayer for. Are you praying that God would miraculously give us a space to worship in um, over the next couple of months? And are you praying for our fall? Are you praying for, your, for, for our church leadership? Are you praying against the, uh, against the plans of Satan so that we can take a stand by being ready to spread his gospel of peace in our world? We are at, we're at war, and so let's stand firm, but let's stand firm together so that we can take our stand together as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this message of Ephesians, this message of of unity under you, under your Lordship Jesus. And I thank you the ways that it teaches us how to live. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us to put on the armor of God this week so that we could put it into into use in prayer. Praying for our church, praying for each other, Just whenever someone comes to mind this week, Father, 
I, I ask you that you would, by your spirit, draw us into praying for them and praying with them even, to giving them a call and saying, can I pray for you? You're on my heart. And Father, um, even now, having said all this, we um, enter into prayer together all over our city to ask for your leading, um, to ask for your protection against the plans of the evil one, and to, and to ask for your miraculous intervention. Um, we pray that your hand would be over this building sale. Um, we pray that your hand would be over our finding a new worship space. And we pray for your miraculous intervention to see us find a worship space that exactly fits our needs um, and fits, the, fits the, the ministry and the good works that you have called us to do um, in, in, in our city. And Father, give us encouragement as we pray that we can know that we're not just sitting back and um, experiencing prayer as a defensive strategy, but also um, give us this sense that as we pray, we're getting off our knees and planting our feet to march forward in the spreading of your gospel, your good news of Jesus crucified and resurrected for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.